Hi, I'm Dr. Janice Morrow. Thanks for joining us for another episode of American Mood Swings, where we talk about the brain and all things related to mental health. Welcome. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us for another episode of American Mood Swings. I'm here with Dr. Ken Duckworth. He is the Chief Medical Officer for NAMI, which stands for the National Alliance of Mental Illness. It's the largest mental health grassroots organization in our country. And uh, Dr. Duckworth, I met him a few months ago at a Hollywood and Mind Summit here in Los Angeles, California. He's joining us today from the East Coast. But he wrote a phenomenal book uh, last year called You Are Not Alone. So we're going to talk about it's a great resource tool for anybody out there, family members of those with mental illness or people that are struggling. There is so much that NAMI does that I had no idea. So I, I was blown away. So we're going to... Um, Dr. Duckworth is also, uh, he has a very broad background in the mental health world. For the last 20 years, he's worked with NAMI. But prior to that, he was the acting um, commissioner of mental health for the city, state of Massachusetts. He's worked in private sector. He's an assistant psychiatrist, a psychiatry professor at Harvard. Um, he's worked with, he is board certified in adult and child psychology. So he's worked with kids, adults, uh, private sector, public sector, uh, the ho homeless population. So he comes, there's this really broad background, which is, you know, very meaningful and helpful. Um, so he also is married uh, to Kelly. You have one, I could tell from interviews that you have one daughter. I don't know if you have more kids. I, I'm just listening to anything I could. And that um, you like Whipple Ball, which I had never heard of. So I had to Google that, see what Whipple Ball. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah, wiffle ball is a staple in my life, yes. Yeah. Well, we all, I think it's very healthy to have outlets and you got to have a little fun too, can't be all work. So do you have one daughter? Do you have more kids or one daughter? Oh, uh, we have five kids. Oh. Um, so it's all good. We're a blended family. So I have three daughters and Kelly has a daughter and a son and uh, they're terrific kids and I'm very lucky. I spent uh, some of the morning minding my grandson today. So nice. I help out my uh, oldest daughter. Oh, I love that's beautiful. And it's fun to, to learn a little bit about people's personal lives. So it's not all, you know, work. Um, that's how old is that child that you were watching today? River is four and a half months. So he's a brand new little human being. It's fantastic. It's super fun. Well, congratulations. Um, well, okay. So let's talk about uh, what non for people out there who've never people in the mental health field know what NAMI is, but for the everybody out there who've never heard of NAMI, if you could just give us a little outline or history of NAMI. Sure. So NAMI uh, is forty four years young, and uh, we're coming up on our forty fifth year. So uh, this is the largest group of education programs and support programs that are free across the country. So wherever you are, there's a NAMI group, and so you don't have to be alone, which is why the book is titled You Are Not Alone. That's NAMI's book. NAMI has the copyright. NAMI gets all the royalties. As you can see, Janice, I have gray hair. I didn't want to retire one day without having written NAMI's first book. <laughs> I found a lot of people have said, boy, if I only knew about this sooner, it would have helped my marriage. If I knew about this sooner, it would have helped my relationship with my son who has bipolar disorder. Um, so my goal was to get this into, you know, Barnes and Nobles and public libraries. And it has been a successful book. It was a USA Today bestseller. So the National Alliance on Mental Illness, there's one near you. There's 700 affiliates across America and all the programs are free. Uh, how are you funded? 
And where does all this money come from? It's the largest are individual donations, Janice. So I'm looking forward to getting your check in the mail. <laughs> so uh, I think we're about 75% individuals give money. So uh, the woman who runs Strategic Alliances Development, she frequently opens up her email and somebody's left us a million dollars in there. Will because um, it helped their daughter or our programs made a difference for people. So um, we have about 20% foundations and about 8% grants from pharmaceutical companies to make the programs free. That's all transparent. So I can don't take any money from the pharmaceutical industry. I'm basically paid by the publisher for the book. Um, so, but individual donations and Mackenzie Scott, uh, yes. who's America's greatest philanthropist, just gave us $30 million. So she evaluated us and checked us out and wrote us a check for $30 million. And so we're using that to build capacity across America. Uh, we're gonna give about half that money away to the local state and affiliate groups. What a wonderful gift. <laughs> the, the, that's the wonderful. It was a good day. It was a good day. When was that? Just in the last couple of weeks? The same day the book came out, uh, the announcement. It's a good, it was a good day in NAMI's history. Nice. Right? We finally had a book and uh, became a USA Today bestseller. And then we got this gigantic check, which has, you know, put everything else. We were hanging right in there and doing pretty well. But that gift, of course, is kind of game changing. Yeah, well, in public exposure, the more public exposure, uh, I strongly feel that the mo more people that see this book, when they see what's what's out there, you know, and how how helpful it, it can be. Um, so you, what what kind of led you to becoming a psychiatrist? I know I was trying to ask you questions you haven't been asked before, but what what's no, your? So my dad was a very loving guy with very bad bipolar disorder, and we couldn't talk about it in my family, and so literally my family was from Philadelphia, and he lost his job. And we got transferred to Michigan where he got a job. And so I'm eight years old in the back of a U-Haul. And like, what is the thing that is so strong it could move a family multiple states, but you can't talk about it? And the answer back in the day was mental illness. And so I could have used this book. My family could have used this book. This book is filled with real people who use their names to share what they learned. How did they come to accommodate and accept their illness? How did they problem solve communication or dating? How do they work within, um, you know, family structures or marriages? So to me, this is the book I always wanted for myself and my own family. I'd go to the bookstore every three, four years, never saw it, Janice. So I thought, I'm just going to break down and write it. And then COVID happened, and then mental health had its moment. Oh. So I've been on this idea for a decade, and then I realized this was the time to write it. And I got 130 volunteers, and, you know, it took a lot of work to go back to each person and say, you talked about accepting hearing voices and what that meant to you. And your name is attached to it. Is this quote okay? Because I think it will help other people. So it was a great project, a lot of work, and uh, very gratifying little I had uh, listened to one of your interviews where you mentioned you had a life-changing, kind of a transformational moment. I, well, I just wanted to bring that up because I think it's really special. I had something like it similar, um, where you took your then-girlfriend, who is now your wife, to a state hospital uh, where your dad used to be treated. And so my my story with, you know, NAMI begins in 1979. NAMI was just forming. And I was in college at the University of Michigan and Northville State Hospital is where my dad used to go for months at a time. We'd never talk about it. He just disappeared. And he got good care there, actually. It probably saved his life. The state hospital, of course, now closed. And my first journey in this was I was sitting in a VW bug that I bought for 50 bucks. I remember this car so well. 
Yeah. I know it was back in the day. I know. But it was a family <laughs> friend who had a baby and wanted to get rid of this unsafe car. And I'm like, I'll buy that car. <laughs> that was 50 bucks. And so I drove this car. And after I visited my dad, who was, you know, quite ill and quite over medicated, and it was very discouraging. And there was nobody to talk to, there was no support groups. I sat alone in my car at this VW uh, bug. And I thought, I'm the most alone person on earth. Mm. There's nobody I can talk to about this. And so many years later, I brought Kelly there when I did the tour of Southeast Michigan. My neighborhood had, you know, more or less completely lost population because the Ford transmission plant had closed. The GM General Assembly plant had closed. My high school had closed. My elementary school had closed. It was kind of a Twilight Zone tour of my little childhood. And I took her to my dad's state hospital. I wanted her to see it. I just wanted her to understand this is a big part of what became my life, you know, becoming a psychiatrist. So we're there and it's overgrown. The windows are punched out. It's an enormous structure. It might be 30 stories high. Windows are broken, completely overgrown. And I wanted to talk to her there about this experience that I had. And this guy who was clearly smoking dope and an AMC pacer, he was so-called security. (laughs) And he was driving by and he rolls down the window and all the smoke comes out the window you're not supposed to be there, right? It's closed. State hospital's closed. And uh, she said, I was kind of overcome with emotion because she was so sweet to me. And she said, we need a minute. We had family here, right? I didn't know her when any of that happened, but she had taken it on. And in that moment, I realized this is just a wonderful person for me. I'm so lucky to have her. And uh that was one of the greatest moments of my whole little life was when a person joined me in something I felt so isolated about. So it all happened at the very crummy parking lot of Northville State Hospital. Well, it gave me just goosebumps because I had just a similar moment. It was my brother, Alan, died about 32 years ago. It was a, he was on a motorcycle and it was an accident. Uh, thank you. But at his at his memorial service, because, you know, I had a lot of I was 27, uh, excuse me, 23. But anyway, uh, uh, we all know that like the words, I love you. Some people have a really hard time saying this word. So I'm, I was just, I felt I had never felt more alone. Definitely the most painful thing in my life to this day, losing my brother that way. It was, unex- but anyway, um, and there, we all know our friends and our family love us, but uh, somebody that I hadn't seen in many years. And she just, as I was standing there by myself, uh, towards the end of the service, she came up and told me that she loved me and the the peace and comfort of just hearing it. I, I you know, you hear it, but in certain moments from that day forward. So for like the last 30, years, I have a much easier time saying those words because I know how much and some people are uncomfortable hearing that. But, you know, I, for, it just it was a game changer for me. I transformed it's me. a very profound way to connect with people. Yeah. And you felt that. Yeah. I definitely felt that. So let's let's delve into some of the again, the book is called You Are Not Alone. So we're going to talk about some of the great programs. There's so many to cover and so many topics. Um, you you mentioned that you had interviewed we, we what we call lived experience experts, those who've actually been in the trenches and, and experiences. Um could, this was the big thing, Janice. Nobody had ever asked real people what they had learned. So, okay, fine. I go to medical school to help my dad. I go to Harvard's training program. I get to the top of the academic mountain. Not one person ever told me about what dogs can do for people. Not one person ever said, you know, in NAMI family to family, none of the professional teachers. And I was taught by amazing professional teachers, right? 
But these real practical things that people were doing, how do you have a discussion with your son? How do you learn to let go and trust that maybe he'll be okay? Right? Like these are all strategies learned in NAMI programming and from each other, from peer conversations. So to me, uh, you know, I was waiting for this book to be written. And, you know, I go to the bookstore every three, four years. I had kids. I was busy. I was working. And I look for the book and I'm like, nobody's written that book. And then another couple of years would go by and I think, gosh, maybe I should write that book. And then I think, nah, I could never write that book. And then COVID happened and I just made a decision. I'm going to give this a try because if there was ever a time for people to learn from real people just like you, I interviewed people from races, ethnicities, religions that were all across the map. And that was very intentional. Doctors, carpenters, CEOs, people who'd been incarcerated. The idea is this doesn't really discriminate. And so this is the book that could have helped me. When our family was out, my dad would have read this book when no one was looking. And I interviewed people who had bipolar disorder, who had been hospitalized, had lost everything, and reassembled their lives. And they're real people, and they use their names. And I thought, boy, this is the book that could have helped my family a lot. So that's kind of why I wrote it, Janice. And uh, I wanted NAMI to have a book. And, uh, you know, I just felt like this was a good little project for me to keep myself busy during COVID. So I did all Zoom interviews. Mm-hmm. You can get transcripts from Zoom interviews. And then I'd send the interview to somebody and I'd say, OK, you lost your children to the Department of Social Services when you were traumatized and using drugs. Are you OK with this quote about you in the book? And she would say, if it helps me. If it helps somebody else, it was all worthwhile. So to me, I ran into so many amazing people through this process. So that's kind of the little backstory of the book. And uh, there's a lot of wisdom in real people. Uh, One of the things you talk about in the book is that for physical conditions, we've got lots of screening tools, like we can check someone's blood pressure. We take their blood, you know, see if they have diabetes, all these MRI, you know, CAT scans. But there, there really wasn't a lot of tools. So you mentioned something called the PH9 questionnaire and that you hope that this would be like, kind of something that everybody would know and as a helpful diagnostic. I had never heard of it. Oh, so the PHQ-9 is a valid free test. It's the uh, 0 to 27 score. It's the nine criteria, 0 to 3, for major depressive disorder in the DSM. This is the screening test your primary care doctor would give to you. Like when you go to primary care, this is the screening test. Mental Health America, which is kind of a sister organization of NAMI, has all these tests. The screening test for anxiety, for depression, for psychosis, all of them are on Mental Health America. And so basically, they're not diagnostic. Just like if you went to CVS and got your blood pressure, it wouldn't be right. But if it was 220 over 150, you'd say, hey, wait a minute. This probably isn't right, but I should get it checked out. That's kind of how I think about the PHQ-9, which is depression, the GAD-7, which is anxiety, These are all validated scales to give information to people. You mentioned how important it is to get uh, the right diagnosis because so many many things can present uh, with similar symptoms. If you could just kind of briefly touch about the importance of the correct diagnosis and how things can... Janice, it's important to know your diagnosis, but you're not your diagnosis. This is kind of... The chapter is called The Paradox of Diagnosis. So if you have bipolar disorder, there's different treatments that work than if you have post-traumatic stress disorder than if you have schizophrenia. But you are not your diagnosis. But the problem is we rely on symptom description. Symptom description. So we don't have 
a blood test. We don't have an MRI scan. We're not there yet. We're just not there. It's important to be honest about that, which is why people get different diagnoses. They get interviewed by a social worker and they present in one way with a set of symptoms. A year and a half later, they see someone else and the person says, well, maybe this is, you know, addiction. And then they do a drug screen and there is no drugs. So, you know, you have to understand it in a different way. So it's a very challenging aspect of our field. Like, you know, you have high blood pressure, you can find out in 30 seconds with a blood pressure cuff. It's really simple. It's measurable. And the search for biomarkers, these are biologic measures of underlying illness, is ongoing. And NIMH is running a gigantic project to try to identify biomarkers for psychosis. Like, what are the biological components that travel with things like schizophrenia? Well, you you mentioned something that's very common with people with the more severe uh, mental illnesses like like schizophrenia, like my brother. Lack of insight is what regular (laughs) folks say. Bananasignosia is the medical term. And uh, the idea is you can't see that your brain is having trouble. So this happens in Alzheimer's disease. This happens with people who have certain kinds of strokes. When I was on the stroke service, when I was an intern, there'd be people who wouldn't wash or dress the right side of their body. They couldn't see that part of their body. So the brain uh, phenomena of not being able to see what's wrong is known as anosognosia, which is fancy medical talk for unawareness of illness. And you see it in Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. You see it in strokes. And you see it in schizophrenia and other psychoses. So my dad had anosognosia. So when he would get manic and psychotic, he would start to hear voices. He would talk to the microwave and receive messages from the microwave. He had no idea that that was an illness process. He was unaware. Six months later, after he'd be at the state hospital and come back normal and healthy, he'd use the same microwave to heat up his coffee without awareness that he had an illness process. And he and I both had denial, which is we didn't want to talk about it. I wanted to have a normal dad. I'm now 13 years old. And he was so ashamed of being in the hospital. So we both had the psychological process of not seeing something, like not wanting to talk about it. That's denial. That's different than the brain-based phenomenon of anosognosia. You can't see it. Just like people with Alzheimer's disease frequently don't know, people with strokes frequently don't know, and people with psychosis like schizophrenia frequently don't know that they have an illness process. It's a particularly painful aspect of these brain-based conditions. In the book, I wanted to have all the answers to all the practical questions. How do you talk to somebody who doesn't know that they're sick? So there's a doctor named Javier Amador who's developed this model where you focus on your relationship, not on getting them to take their meds. Like, how can I help you? How can I support you? This requires patience and training. Really, it takes the patience of a saint to do this model. I also asked the guy who invented motivational interviewing to describe that process. So I wouldn't say it's always the wrong thing to tell a person that they have an illness and they need help. That's not always the wrong thing. So don't judge yourself if you've done that. This is a very natural thing. You don't want him to suffer with an illness. and You don't want him to suffer being in the hospital or having bad consequences. So be gentle with yourself. Nobody really knows how to approach this. But take a look at that motivational interviewing idea where it's the idea that you listen for what they want. Do they want a job? Do they want a girlfriend? What do they want? 
And then you focus on the strength of your relationship. How could I help you with those goals? As opposed to focusing on illness and meds. There's a man in the book. This quote didn't make it into the book. Um, he had schizophrenia and he said, my mother said, if you want to live in this house, you got to take your meds. And he started to take his meds. So he said, I realized I couldn't handle it out in the world. My mother loved me and said, you got to take your meds. So I took them. So again, I'm not saying it's the right thing or the wrong thing. What I think it's helpful to know is different schools of thought on how to approach these problems. And that's why I had some of the best experts in America also give answers to common questions. Do I really have to take these meds forever? How do you talk to somebody who doesn't want help? How do you deal with somebody who's saying they're suicidal? To me, I thought these were really important practical things. And so I went to the best thinker on this question, you know, in the country and everybody loves NAMI. So they all agreed to give me an answer. So, I mean, who cares what Ken Duckworth thinks about some of these questions, right? But I do know everybody. And I was like, hey, You've spent your life inventing motivational interviewing. Why don't you describe it for people? And so, you know, it's kind of a fun thing because he said, oh, I'd love to be in NAMI's first book. So it's been studied uh, in 200 randomized controlled trials. He first developed it for addiction. Okay. That was the first thing he developed. And then he realized it worked for a lot of other things. Let's talk about, because uh, a, general, a big theme of, of the book is, is that how important peer support and community service and co- the sense of community. Um, so, But you also talk about uh, proactive planning um, and having a crisis response plan, because I think that's very important. And the, the RAP, the Wellness Recovery Action Plan, if we could just touch on that. Sure. So let's talk about the peer thing first. You know, I'm really a community psychiatry. I was way on the non-traditional end of things before I started the book. And once I listened to people, I had to go even farther in my thinking on the role of being a peer. People would say the guy who helped me the most was the guy next to me in the hospital. The person who helped me the most was a person just like me with serious depression who battled through it. The thing that made a difference for me was becoming a peer so that I could use my experience to help others. Very profound development. In the book proposal, I had the power of community. So I wanted to have Fountain House and the Clubhouses of America. I think these are really important things. But in listening to 130 people, it had to become the power of peers in community. Because what people told me over and over and over again is they wanted to learn from people just like them. So in addition to that, so the book is both experience and research, I reached out to Mary Ellen Copeland, who invented the Wellness Recovery Action Plan, or RAP, as you mentioned, and I had her describe her journey to figure it out, and then in the back of the book, I had her explain what what RAP is, and so the Wellness Recovery Action Plan, or RAP, is a self-directed kind of recovery plan where you say, okay, here's things that are stressing me. Here's things I need to work on. Here's what's going to help me. Here's the people I would call. It's very self-directed, right? And um, it's very recovery-based. I mean, it's really empowering people to take control. And a variation on that is having a crisis plan. So if I develop symptoms in the future, here's people I want to call. Here's hospitals that don't work for me. Don't do this please do this. Here's a person that I want to trust to help make decisions if I become incapacitated. So to me, these are all very 
powerful things that you can do. An advanced directive is a legal term for this kind of thing, but in a lot of states, they're not considered legitimate. So they're not honored. So well, I don't under, I thought that that's exactly what they're for. Why wouldn't they be honored? In mental health, only some states acknowledge them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so every state is different. This okay. is really important. Every state is on its own, you know, set of rules and regulations. So, uh, but I still think it's helpful that process of developing a crisis plan. Who would I want to make decisions with me, for me, if I became super incapacitated? I think it's a really good process. Let's talk about, um, there's so much to cover, but uh, the shatterproof and substance use treatment uh, locators. There's a lot of addiction is, you know, affecting a lot of families now, probably most families and throughout our country in some way or a loved one. Um, And it's hard to know like where to start or you know, a lot of the, a lot of the treatment inpatient facilities are very cost prohibitive. I know my brother, my older brother went through one like 30 years ago, and it was about 25 or 30 grand a month at that point. <laughs> and it's also very hard to know what the quality is. Yes. So right? like it's, it's not transparent. So Shatterproof is run by a lovely man uh, who lost his son to addiction. And he made a decision to work the problem to get as many uh, facilities to be as transparent as possible. So do you give Suboxone, which is a treatment for opiates? Yes or no. Do you have peer coaches? Yes or no. Which insurance do you accept? Do you have a follow-up plan? Like it seems really basic, Janice, but a lot of these programs have existed in a vacuum with no accountability or feedback. It's really been a very large problem that we have faced. Um, and so Shatterproof is an effort to uh, make the opaque transparent so that a person could go to the Shatterproof website and say, okay, my son needs A, B, C, D. Do they have this? And which one is located in Northern California? And then for So to me, you know, Gary Mendel is doing something that's really valuable. It's important to know what you're getting. And the addiction community has not been progressive, proactive about making everything transparent. Does that make sense? Yes. So that's why the need for Shatterproof, and that's why I reached out to Gary, because I said, Gary, people need to know about this. So the whole book is practical things that would help you. Whether you're talking to somebody who's battling in their church to have their mental health and their faith, or you're talking to an expert on making the addiction world transparent, or you're talking to somebody who invented motivational interviewing, or to a family that learned how to communicate over very difficult topics. The whole book is a practical book. It's not a a theoretical book. Like the goal is to help people. NAMI is super practical. People come to a NAMI support group or to an education program. People are there to help you. Like, this is not to talk about the theory of dopamine receptors. <laughs> like, this is like, you're going through something. We've been there. We want to help you. We want to support you. SAMHSA, or the, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, they can also help you locate a facility. That's right. They have a treatment locator. That's okay. exactly right. Just but it's not quite as detailed. As shatterproof. Okay. Good right. Time. My experience. Now, maybe they're working on it. Maybe it'll get better. But I wanted people to know most people don't know about the SAMHSA treatment locator. Most no. people don't know about Shatterproof. 
Well, that's like, oh, we have insurance. Let's go to the local place. Well, well, the local place that might not have anything of what you want. And they will charge you real money, as you mentioned. Yeah. Let's talk about the uh, coordinated specialty care to help with uh, early psychosis care, what that, that concept is. Look at you, Janice, reading the book, writing <laughs> down all the notes. You're terrific. You must have been a great student, you know, in your student days. Fantastic. So coordinated specialty care is the first public health approach to psychosis. So instead of treating everybody with grade four, stage four cancer, the same, we're trying to treat psychosis like cancer. If you have stage one cancer, you might get a biopsy and an X radiation. You might get nothing. You might get a follow-up visit in three months. If you have stage four cancer, you're going to get chemotherapy and intensive treatment. So the idea analogy, of great analogy. coordinated specialty care is when a person presents with paranoia or voices, you bring them into this loving community where the families are involved. They learn how to manage things. They're not encouraged to go on disability. They're encouraged to get back to school, to get a job, right? Like to be part of the world and rebuild your identity. Coordinated specialty care is a work of genius. And there's 300 programs all across America. And you just need to know that this exists. And so if you have a family history of psychosis or you have a family member who's developing symptoms that look like they are psychosis and they could have bipolar disorder or addiction, trauma, schizophrenia, like you don't have to know the diagnosis. Find that program near you because they are pretty cool. I volunteered at one for five years. Hmm. It's a very nice community. It's a very nice culture. And it's a lot of young people. So, you know, you don't go to a clinic where there's a bunch of guys in their 50s. You go to a clinic where there's a lot of young, cool people that are dealing with the same things as you. Okay. And and somebody could reach out to their local NAMI in their area and they could guide them to where they can find one of these. Okay. Right. And SAMHSA has a list. Uh, you mentioned SAMHSA search. You'll find them. All right. Well, it's it's a very good approach. Um I'm sorry, I'm just hammering through this because we have about 15, 20 more minutes and maybe we'll have another discussion in the future. But let's talk about the uh, intersection of the two approaches between the medical model and what that consists of in conjunction with the recovery model and not just one or the other and how how both are useful with mental health issues. Okay, so the medical medical model is great for like, you know, heart disease, but there's also a recovery model there. You have heart disease. We're going to give you an operation to replace your arteries around your heart. That's medical model. The recovery model would say you should buy a really good pair of sneakers and walk your dog in the park every day. Go easy on ice cream. (laughs) Stop smoking. So these are like lifestyle tools. Okay. So the medical model in psychiatry is we're going to focus on your symptoms. You're hearing voices. You're struggling with suicidality. We're going to give you psychotherapy or medications to help with those. But the recovery model is all the things that everybody wants. It's building a life. It's, you know, a date, a job, and something to do on a Saturday night, right? All the things that you build to be part of a community or become a peer or build a life. And this has had tension in the field because psychiatry is accused of being too medical model. And what people want are things that make their lives more meaningful richer that's the recovery model 
So the book is interested in the integration of the medical and the recovery model. So to me, having your symptom controlled is a great idea, but it's not enough. You mm. still have to build a life, right? But it's harder to build a life if your symptoms aren't under control. One of the things that we're going to focus on too on the show and hoping to incorporate in every episode or every, the la- it's going to be like a 60 minutes kind of show. We're going to have medical expert, uh, subject matter expert, uh, lived experience person, but we're going to have, then we'll talk about treatments, but we want to bring in uh, spiritual faith-based leaders of all different kinds of denominations because uh, the creator and Rick and I both feel strongly. I mean, your spirituality and faith helps a lot of people get through life, and especially in their darkest moments, helping them not take their life. Absolutely. And I interviewed people for whom that was true. NAMI has a whole group called FaithNet. These are people who are using kind of their spirituality and faith to help them deal with the mental health conditions that they have or the people in their families have. So you might want to interview them for a future uh, episode. I got lots of great potential interviews from reading your book. Lots of potential guests. Let's yeah, just reach out to me. They're they're doing all kinds of things. They're on TV. They're doing interviews. Like they want to help other people. That's been the real joy of the book. Okay, is they've gone from feeling like something happened to them to becoming an agent of making the world a better place. And that's cool. Let's talk about you. You also delve into the importance uh, as far as, you know, part of the recovery model is employment and how important that is to people. Um, I had interviewed a few months ago, the head of Disability Rights California. And one of the things that he thinks he would like to see uh, revisited or a different approach is kind of what you emphasize in the book as well is that, for like for someone to be on disability, they have to kind of try to prove that they they can't, for all the reasons they can't work. And, and he said it's just it has the opposite effect. It's better instead of that. A better approach is like what tools and services can we provide to help you so you can work and the importance of work. And you touch jobs on jobs are so central to American culture, right? We're a very work oriented world, and if you're not in that world. You know, you're left out of some of the good things in our society. We're talk about what you have going on, what you're trying to do. We might have gone too far as a society, but people with mental health have not been given the opportunities to pursue work in the same way. So if you are not able to work and then you get a job, you're at risk of losing not only your disability benefits, but your health insurance. So I agree with your person. We should be finding ways to help people work. And the dignity and money and status that come with work. We're just having, for me, I mean, I, I learned, I felt this at COVID because I, I don't plan. COVID made me never want to retire, whether it's volunteerism one day, because I, I like getting up and having somewhere to go. And, and uh, I had too much free time during COVID. But you mentioned IPF supported employment. So let's talk about what that is. and, and Individual placement and support. This is so-called supported employment. This is a program that we know works, that helps people keep jobs, but it's hard to get it funded. So this is a good advocacy tool. And if you want to fight for things, contact your local NAMI. NAMI just helped lead a whole movement to get the 988 three-digit crisis lifeline. I had nothing to do with that. I was working on the book. The policy team did everything. But advocacy is when you see a problem. Like, hey, we should be supporting more people to work. 
then you get together and you work the problem locally, statewide, and nationally. 988 is a good example of that. People shouldn't have a long, clunky number uh, for suicide prevention that ends in a police response. The goal of 988 is to have a three-digit number in Spanish, which is working, with a very high response rate of trained people, and then to have a mental health response, ideally, if you need that, instead of a police response. We've we've all seen some very highly public uh, arrests and things like that, or police called when everything goes wrong and somebody ends up you know, getting shot and they're, they're implementing more of these crisis response teams. So um, let's talk, you just briefly touch on trauma. Um, there's so many, that could be a whole nother discussion, but I just want to have that conversation. Yes. Uh, would that be better to, I just want well, to know we can talk about it now. I think, you know, um, trauma is an important part of mental health. And I think the quicker you acknowledge that without having it explain everything in most cases, the better you are. It's a piece of a puzzle for a lot of people. And I interviewed people what helped them with their trauma and whether it was EMDR or other psychotherapies, cognitive behavior therapy, medications, a service dog that helped Nadine with the people who she felt threatening her. Like different people found different things that worked. And this was the joy of the book. But trauma is a part of the equation. And it's just important to acknowledge that. You mentioned cognitive behavior. I wanted to just briefly touch on cognitive behavior therapy because you just mentioned it because it's it's a tool that's used to help people with lots of different issues, not just trauma, P, well, PTSD, but other things. So could you just kind of overview of what that is? So Aaron Beck invented it. He was a psychiatrist at Pencil, University of Pennsylvania. His daughter wrote the explanation for what is cognitive behavior therapy, Judith Beck. She runs the Beck Institute. She's very well known. The idea in some, I'm going to not do justice to this in two minutes, is your feelings follow your thoughts. So if you feel badly about yourself and you feel that you are a failure as opposed to you have failed, right? You didn't get something done or you had a relationship not work out. It's not the same as saying you can't get anything done and you are unlovable. So cognitive behavior therapy would have you attend to what your thoughts are and to make sure that your thoughts are actually reasonably connected to reality. So if you think, oh, I did a terrible job on this interview. It was the worst interview Janice has ever had. I felt terrible about myself. Right. And then you send me an email and say, Ken, you really did a good job. I'll say, well, is it possible that I did a good job? Or maybe I'm just a terrible interviewee. You know, like the idea is don't let your thoughts travel too far down a negative pathway. And that's one of the reasons cognitive behavior therapy is helpful for depression. It's also helpful for anxiety and panic. It can even be helpful for people who hear voices, right? It's cognitive behavior therapy for psychosis. Well, I believe I deserve to die because the voices say I'm worthless and a horrible person. And then the interviewer would say, well, what's the worst thing you've ever done? Person's taken aback. Like, well, I don't think we we're going to ever discuss that. I stole a comic book when I was nine. So the voices say you're a horrible person and you should die. Is that really like based in reality? Well, not really. I see your point because I only stole one comic book, you know, <laughs> and you're not. Have you done anything to harm anybody? No, I've never done anything to harm anybody, broken any laws. Well, that comic book was technically, uh, <laughs> you know, but. What you do is you take the cognition, the thoughts, 
and you examine them critically, like, wait a minute, I probably wasn't Janice's worst interviewee ever. Huh. Like, come on. And then you'll send me a nice note afterwards. And I could think Janice is just being nice to me. And I'm a terrible interview. But another way to think about it is, okay, I did my best. I got through it. She wants to have me back. That's a good sign. Right? So the cognitions, don't let your automatic negative thoughts drive your emotional state. Like, that's the basic principle. It's a very helpful therapy. It's usually short term. A lot of people get uh, scared of going to mental health types for years. Uh, it's usually eight to 12 sessions, right? Like you're not committing to a lifetime on the couch, okay. which is what people have in mind when they say, oh, go see a mental health practitioner. Oh, no, I don't have time for a lifetime of psychotherapy. Well, you may not need that. Cognitive behavior therapy is designed to be short and tactical, help you with your thinking so that your feelings will follow your thinking. Can you talk about, there's two programs that really look interesting and helpful. There's the NAMI Basics Education Program, and then there's the NAMI Ending the Silence Program, if you could just touch on those. Yeah, so the uh, NAMI Basics is a program for kids. Uh, so parents who have young kids who have severe behavioral trouble, and this is an online class, because no parent has time to go to a Lutheran church basement. Like, <laughs> it's never going to happen. So if you have a six-year-old who's really uh, having very difficult behaviors or is talking about harming himself or whatever it is, NAMI Basics is a free online program to help parents. This has been studied in a randomized controlled trial. It helps the parents. Ending the silence was invented by a mom, and I interviewed the, the mom who invented this program, to have people go to middle schools and high schools and say, if you have symptom A, symptom B, symptom C, like I did when I was your age, Joe here in counseling is here to connect you to help. Do you know what I mean? And so the idea is mental health is part of the conversation. Now, we've done a lot of political stuff with schools, but it's still our fastest growing program at NAMI. Ending like, the silence. Okay. Ending the silence, because basically parents know that there's a mental health crisis in youth and young adults, middle school schoolers and high schoolers, right? Right there. And they want to do something about it. And probably the idea that the child should know more about their mental health than less is seen by many people as a very important idea. All right. So any school, junior high, high school, they can invite NAMI to give a, a discussion on it. Yeah, and it'll be done for free. While I was on this call, we got an email. Somebody gave us $2.5 million in a grant. So that was one of the things you heard. Right. So, you know, th this happens like we're like this nonprofit that, you know, is doing some good and people want to find us and give us money to help people because all the programs are free. This is critical. Like you're already burdened by living with a mental health condition or loving somebody who has one. You do not have to pay for the support. This is not instead of social workers. We like social workers. This is not instead of psychiatrists. We like psychiatrists, but there aren't enough of them. And you can also get help from real people for free anywhere in the country. And, and it's online, it's on Zoom, and they're in person. So it's just really important to know that you're not alone. And NAMI programs help people for kids, parents, and adults. I'm going to end with one question. It could be a whole nother episode, but it's just a, just briefly touching on um, the California and New York have both implemented uh, care court kind of, they call them care courts where 
people are like compelled to, homeless people or street they can be compelled to go get psychiatric services or help and it's very controversial but the book mentions assisted outpatient treatment so it sounds like it's kind of a support system for somebody in this situation could you just touch on that order i i wanted to interview somebody who had been through it so instead of just getting into the i like this or i hate this which is the most common positions people take it can be very polarizing. People are afraid that their rights will be taken away. Assisted outpatient treatment or AOT applies to a very narrow group of people. It's very narrow. And um, NAMI's policy team has said it should be the last tool in the toolbox, but it should be in the toolbox. So to me, it's a permissible idea if a person has anosognosia, Motivational interviewing hasn't worked. Javier Amador's work hasn't worked. The person is at risk of harming themselves or others. This is why you're dealing with the lack of awareness of insight plus violence or plus a grave risk of harm or disability. So again, this is very few people get this. And uh, you know, I think that's really important. This is not a prescription for forced treatment for people in across America. It's a very narrow group of people who would get additional services and a follow-up that is court-ordered. This is an alternative to a very punitive way of thinking about people. So, and our correctional system is not set up for this kind of follow-up and compassion. So I just think it's important to recognize there are some people and there are some moments where this is appropriate. That's NAMI's position. I happen to agree with it. But you are living well with depression. You are not going to have this happen to you. You're figuring out your bipolar disorder in and out of hospitals, even struggling with that. This is not going to apply to you. This is for people who have typically violence plus lack of awareness of illness plus a severe resistance to treatment. The idea is to give them an alternative that gives them a chance for living and not a correctional life. That's I'm exactly on. I'm on board, um, having lived it with my brother. So I wanted yeah. to just close with thanking you very much again. The book, uh, Dr. Duckrothra, is You Are Not Alone. And or it's a very helpful resource tool. And I definitely hope to meet with you in the future again. And uh, hopefully when you come to California in March. Yep. I'll be there. Um, are you going to be in the L.A. area? I'm going to make that work to come see you because I really enjoyed this. Oh, and it could be an in-person interview as well. That's so. right. It'd be fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for everything you're doing, Janice. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining everyone. Take care. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for another episode of American Mood Swings, where we talk about the brain and all things mental health. Hope to see you next week, and please share with your friends. 